three, two, one, and we are recording live. Yes, you guessed it. We are in another episode of CodeCast. However, today is the start of what would be known as season two. First season was just building up different skills of just different things that people are subject matter experts on, bringing them on to discuss around that. What I want to do is how we take the next evolution going forward and started to create season two, which will be known as Furious Competitor. Now the title's got a lot to go into it. Um, it was basically finding people that I'm close with that exemplify a large role of all the things we talked about in season one and starting to show a glimpse of people that are in the beginning stage of a business, the growth stage of a business, which actually comes after the beginning, and then folks that are towards the reflective stage of the business. So folks that have had a large business and are now reflecting back on that. Uh, First person that I have for Furious Competitor is actually a guy who fits like six different roles. Uh, we'll use close friend to start it off with, uh, Chad McQuaid. Chad, welcome. Hey, Codes. How are you? Thanks for having me today. Hey, happy to make this happen. It's been a long time coming. So I've been meaning to have Chad on this for probably since I started started it, but it just wasn't the right timing just yet. Um, Chad and I actually have by far, of all the people I've interviewed, the most interesting friendship of how it began, because it wasn't very traditional. So to give you some perspective of like how this whole episode came to be, so Chad and I do the same thing. When I first started doing this, Chad was somewhat of a mentor person that I got matched with. However, uh, when I was younger, in my young early days of being around 21 years old, me taking feedback sometimes wasn't perceived the way that it should have been. So I remember there's this one distinct thing. I think I was like 21, maybe 22. And the business had a really, really good month. Like, it's funny now that, like, what I think is a really good month, but if I look back, right. I'd be like, that's Absolutely. not good, dude. And I remember, <laughs> like, just be, being so excited about it. And I remember you walk past and you're like, that's pretty cool. What are you going to do next month? And that irately sent me to the moon. Like, if my blood pressure was getting red, we're going north of 200 at that point. And the interesting part about it is maybe because it made me think of, like, how myself and my dad's relationship was, and it didn't sit well with me for the longest time. Fast forward, we go on this, this vacation that we're all on with a couple of us, we go out to Arizona. And uh, we were out there just playing bags. That's one of my favorite games to play. Like I don't golf, I don't do any fancy stuff, but you get a set of wood boards and some corn and some cloth, I'm happier than like, you know, a pig in slop. And then Chad and I ended up being partners. So I was like, all right, we'll see what this happens here. And it's the middle of the spring of Arizona. It's probably, I don't know, 80, 90 degrees out. We're in the middle of the sun. We probably played for three or four hours. And I was like, all right, whatever. We had a dinner at five we're all going to go to. And uh, one of the other people in our group walks up to Chad and I around like 4.30. He's like, hey, dinner's at like 5.30. Like everyone's got to shower and get ready. We still have to drive with the Uber to get to dinner. And I remember Chad looking at this person and saying, I can shower after dinner. So at that point, that'll forever change my life of being like, well, hold on. This is actually quite different. So Chad and I actually started off became bags partners <laughs> off the competitive nature of him and I screaming at each other, but in a good way. Um, 
to then eventually becoming friends. And what made me think about and realize was that that comment that he'd made to me years prior that I never let go, it wasn't because it was actually critiquing me. It was from the fact of how bad the guy wanted me to win. And that's something I didn't realize till years later. Fast forward now, him and I are actually pretty good buddies uh, from a multitude of different facets, and that's how the relationship's actually been able to grow. So without further ado, so we're going to break ourselves into this first saga. Chad, anything to add before we kind of get this car off the ground? No, but I definitely remember both of those moments. I mean, really, Codes, when, when you had that first great month, you know, there's two ways of looking at that. One, we can, you know, pat you on the back and tell you how great you are. But I think you have to know who you're talking to. And I know you wanted to be pushed and I knew you were here to grow and uh, build something and, um, you know, really elevate yourself. And I think the that was the right delivery for you. And sometimes you got to, you know, pat people on the back. Sometimes you've got to encourage them. Other times you got to challenge them. And you just seemed like you were someone who wanted to be challenged. So you may not have realized that in the moment, but, uh, you know, I think that was, was what was best for you. So, and the bags, I remember that too, you know. I just love to compete and, you know, I do like to win, but even more than winning, I like to compete. For sure. Which actually, so this will bring us into the first part of this whole thing. So I firmly believe that when you, when you hear the term furious competitor, you know, you might be an outward furiously competitor where the guy might be screaming and yelling. You might have an internal furious competitor who's having the conversation with themselves. You're just not hearing it outwardly. Either way, most furious competitors, they're either born or they're built. Most people are built. But so Chad, now most people see you now in like what I would consider to be the growth stage of the business. Like it's getting big, bigger and bigger and bigger. Sure. But if you bring it back to like when you were a kid, were you always as competitive, like out of the womb as you are now? Uh, I think it's a combination probably. Um, I grew up with a twin brother and um, when you have a twin brother, you always have someone to compete with. So I think that was huge. My dad was a college basketball player and uh, just, you know, hearing his success and, you know, being the all-time leading scorer at the, our high school and, uh, you know, just wanting to be the best he could be in his professional career and as an athlete. I mean, I remember going to the gym, he'd play old man basketball and we, my brother and I would get to shoot at the side hoops and the guy was just getting after it, even in his 40s and probably early 50s. So it was definitely something that was observed and built. Um, I also think the way my parents raised me and some of the things they exposed me to made me a competitor as well. Um, but I definitely think it was a combination of both, but probably built a lot to do with my folks. You know. Uh, all the kids in our family were athletes. Um, three out of the four kids played in state championships, and we weren't the most athletically gifted. Um, but I think it had a lot to do with our dedication and our, you know, willingness to compete. So, it's a commonality I've researched just over and over: is how much your parents will affect how you grow up as a kid and like how you see things. Now, I'm assuming, obviously, if your dad was a collegiate athlete, he's probably coached you guys in one or two things. A couple of things. He really wasn't an active coach growing up. Um, I love coaching. I coach my kids now. But what he did is he just basically competed with us in the driveway. He never, ever let us win at basketball. I don't think I beat him at basketball until I was 15 or 16, and he didn't go down easy. 
like he used to just bury us as as kids like he would you know he'd run up the score on me so to speak and it just drove me to to want to win and get better and beat him what did that teach you like if you reflect back on that like what is the biggest takeaway you got from a kid from going through the whole thing and finishing the cycle of actually beating him um, well, first of all, it was really rewarding. I don't know if it was a matter of me just hitting my growth spurt or him just becoming an old man. But <laughs> we'll call it 50-50. We'll call that 50-50 <laughs> for sure. Uh, but, you know, really it was, uh, it, was, it was really just learning how to get better and it was okay to fail. I think the thing that people are afraid to do these days is fail. They have a lot of fear of failure and uh, so they don't want to compete or they don't want to go for bigger things because of the failure factor. Um, and I just think that in our family, it was okay to fail. It wasn't acceptable not to try our hardest. And so my parents never put a tremendous amount of, um, a, a tremendous amount of focus on the, the, the win, it was how you competed. I was more apt to get feedback, positive feedback from my parents and, and them tell me that they were proud of me as a result of giving my best versus a game that was easy, like a soccer game and going out and scoring a bunch of goals against an inferior team. Got it. So it was never about the W, it was all about just giving it your best. Got it. And that's one of the questions I was going to say is like, what was the feedback you were typically getting around? But it's not yeah. the ones that losses, it's the effort. I it think was always about the effort, Coates. It was always about the effort. And really just that mindset is like, don't regret, don't have any regrets. Just go for it. If you fail, it's okay. Interesting. Interesting. And I'm assuming it's kind of cool now just to take a quick second to touch on this of like being a parent now to coach kids of like you get to continue the saga right so it's like writing this like McQuaid family encyclopedia right and you get chapter one and chapter two and hopefully the situation I'm assuming for you is like hey I can coach my kids and take all the stuff I learned and add a little extra to it and then eventually when your kids coach their kids they take all that stuff they learn and add a little extra on top of it that's right interesting yeah how much and I'd be curious to know this too how much did having a twin brother increase the competitive nature of just how you saw life? I don't know. I mean, we competed in everything. Um, we always, it was kind of like we, it was, it was like we had boxing gloves and we'd beat the snot out of each other and we'd be upset about it for five minutes and move on, you know. So certainly having a twin brother was, was, was helpful. Um, I think one of the things about having a twin brother for most people is they are an encourager for you. And I think that was huge for me as well. So, you know, we both played, uh, we both played high school golf and, uh, you know, we competed against each other every time we played. But uh, when it came to a match, it was a team game. So if I came in with a 78, I hope he came in with a 77. So we found this way to compete and push each other but also, um, you know, support each other and encourage each other. And when I think about the business that we're in codes, I, I really think that that's why surrounding yourselves with others that um, want to see you succeed, they will succeed. You know, 
couple examples of that, right? You know, Roger Bannister, first guy to run the four-minute, run, run sub-four-minute mile. After he ran it, all these people started accomplishing that. Well, first of all, they saw what was possible, right? Uh, I mean, this, this happened to me just yesterday. I was at my brother's lake house. We were uh, surfing. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Surfing behind these boat, uh, like a, a tow boat. Yeah, wake surf. Wake surf. Yeah. Thank you. Wake surf. And uh, none of my brother's kids had ever let go of the rope and like really surfed the wave for more than a few seconds. Well, it just happened to be that the first one uh, got up, and I don't know if he was trying to impress his uncle or what, but he got up there and he was surfing for like a minute and a half straight, letting yeah. go of the rope. Well, lo and behold, the two other brothers got up and did it for the first time as well. So I think there's something about surrounding yourself, you know, with others that are competing at the same thing, but also encouraging each other along the way. And I think that was a huge advantage of having a twin brother. We definitely competed. It was like, it helped us grow, but we were also there to encourage us. And I think in life, you know, when you can surround yourself in different areas of your life that you really want to get better with others that will push you and give you that tough love and hold you accountable, you're going to be better. If we take, it's interesting how you're talking with this, right? So it's like, it sounds like the first person that's kind of giving me the competitive edge is your dad, right? And then you start to appreciate having Corey next to you all the time. When did you become self-aware of realizing that, like, hey, hanging out with highly competitive people is only going to make me better? Hmm. I think I figured that out right before I took this job as a wealth management advisor. I, I, I went to law school and I really didn't reach out to others and build relationships with others. I kind of isolated myself. And then I came to Chicago, practice law for a very short time, felt very isolated. Law is not a area where you surround yourself typically with others. And I didn't have mentors and colleagues to, to like grow with. I worked at a boutique office. Then I moved over to real estate and spent five years in real estate. But what I found out when I was real estate, in real estate, I was hanging out with my brother's colleagues. And I was watching my brother grow as a professional in this positive, encouraging, fun, competitive environment. And I didn't even care at a certain point what my brother was doing for a living. I wanted to be a part of that of that environment. These guys were trying to be, whether it was a great husband or a great boyfriend, they were, they were, you know, trying to be as good of a son as they could, an adult son as they could, a good friend. And they were trying to build a career that would give them this life by design to really design what they wanted out of their life and use their career as a, as a uh, tool to get there. And I think that was my kind of adult aha moment, that it was almost more important to be uh, on the same bus, not worrying about where you were going, but making sure you were on the bus with the right people. How old were you guys when that was at, like, you started to realize that? Well, I mean, I started in this current career at 31, but I would say that I was getting that impression from my brother Probably, uh, he was in the career five years before me, so I'd put it at like 26, 
27, it was a real aha moment for me that, um, you know, climbing Mount Everest by yourself, um, no one does that. They go with other climbers, they take Sherpas, they have guides, they have people that know the mountain. There's a lot that goes into that. And uh, that was just an exciting environment to be around. It just reminded me of being part of a, you know, a team, right? Um, especially in an individual sport. Um, you know, business is kind of an individual sport. And ultimately, it can be lonely on the trail, so to speak, unless you are really going down that trail with others. I find it so, like this is kind of referencing like the second episode I did, but people always assume highly competitive people that are growing a business want to smash other people in the same like mm. group yeah. or range, but that's that's, right. it's such a, I don't know where that started from, Yeah, but it's, I can't, I don't know, I'm sure you found this too. I can't, it couldn't be further from the truth. Like people that are actually growing and want to grow, like want other people to do it with. So you don't have to be the only guy trying to hike the trail the whole time. That's right. I, I mean, there, uh, I'm going on a quail hunting trip in December. And uh, I was asked to go by my business coach. And it's, I'm really excited about it because I think four of the top 10 advisors in our company out of 7,000 are gonna be on the trip. And what I found out is they're all very close friends. And so you could think that they're competing with the, you know, for the number one spot, so to speak, in the company on a yearly basis, but to the contrary. They vacation together, they go out to dinner together, they're in a study group together to share what's working well, their challenges, they hold each other accountable. You know, they're there when, for each other when life hits them between the eyes. And so I think there are com competitors out there, there that are very individualistic, but oftentimes those type of competitors crash and burn. There, there are things that happen, I, you know, amazing golfer. And I think he's recovered well, but Tiger Woods, yeah. look how he crashed and burned with his marriage and some th other things that were going on in his life. Um, I heard he was very isolated and didn't have a lot of friends. And I think one of the biggest learnings from him crashing and burning and, you know, coming back and winning the masters is he, became vulnerable and he built relationships with other people. So that's just one example of someone who was a competitor, but ultimately I think it, it resulted in him crashing and burning. It's the nature of the, the impact too. I think like you can take it one of two ways too, right? If you want to be the guy who's super competitive, hanging out with other competitive people, it's going to make you a better competitor. Right. And then, the same point too, there's a guy that's isolating himself, which that's usually not good. Or you mentioned you're, you know, 27, 28, right? Living in the city of Chicago, which if you're not born from the city, it's kind of an interesting thing because you and I both share this coming from very small towns. Yes. So like you go into like, you can only get in so much trouble in a small, like it's kind of limited to your options. But when you go to a city like Chicago, is it, I always jokingly say the devil's imminent and it's everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So surrounding yourself with core guys to make sure you stay competitive, right? Versus becoming the statistic of like that guy had so much or girl had so much in the tank, but just surrounding yourself with an environment of people that just don't have the same competitive nature to you. It's so easy to fall down that to say, hey, you know what? 
why life's pretty good. I'm better than most of my friends. So like, I don't have to try that hard anymore versus trying to be around guys to where you're like, hey, he's gonna keep hammering. I have to or else they're all gonna blow past me. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, you know, just think about just your journey through the city of Chicago and moving there, like how important was that to you to make sure like, hey, having that group of friends keeping you on the path of continued growth, like during that time, because you'll see it like a lot of times, like I'm in that age or just past that age group where you see a lot of guys you thought would have crushed it, go southbound or like, man, that got to him or like that vice got to him. How important was it to you that that group of guys allowed you to keep growing? Yeah, I mean, I think that group of individuals evolves over time. Um, it doesn't mean that people that aren't as ambitious as, uh, and driven as me are, are bad people. But I just realized that for me, the excitement of life and staying energized and um, focused on what I want to build requ- required me to, to surround myself with those individuals. Um, and uh, so it was absolutely critical. I moved to the city in uh, 2002. Um, and so I, I got married in, in 2006. Um, you know, I moved to the city after law school, so I was already three years out of undergraduate. So I was probably you know twenty, I guess twenty, I don't know twenty five, and so I got married around thirty. And uh, yeah, during that period of time, it was it, there were uh, definitely some ups and downs professionally in trying to you know figure out you know, who that group of individuals were that I was really going to spend my time with. And I I know some of the guys I was spending my time with, you know, I'd end up uh, out too late, you know, and, uh, you know, my business coach always talks about capacity. And, you know, if you have a lot of big goals, do you have enough capacity to accomplish them all? And, uh, you know, you could, I, I definitely would make better decisions around some guys versus others. And, um, you know, it was, it was really a trial and error process, but, you know, over time, you know, I really started to hone in on, you know, which of those individuals I was going to, you know, surround myself with because it was helping me determine the kind of person I really wanted to become. I think the critical time period, right, when you talk about your late 20s, early 30s, there's going to be a lot of, like, things that are going to really be the first, I guess, serious wave of things, right, that are going to hit you in life, right? Because I think... You ever notice when you're 16, 17, all the way to probably 23, 24, like you can call your parents and they can probably like help you out of that some way, shape or form. Like, but once you get to like that older stage, you're kind of like, well, this is on me right now because you have the awareness. What would you say is the biggest thing that you had happen to you in your late twenties where you could have quit, right? Where it's like, Hey, I could have quit here, but didn't. And that keeps me moving forward now. Like as we move through your life. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that was a decision for me was um, switching careers a couple of times. You know, uh, went to law school, that's an absolute grind uh, for three years. And, you know, even my undergrad, I had fun in undergrad. Uh, Not as much fun as most people, but I had fun, but I was so focused on the goal of going to law school. And so I put this tremendous amount of pressure on myself to be a lawyer and spent four years of undergrad doing that. It took me about one day of law school to decide, holy cow, I don't think I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. 
And then I grinded through three years of law school, which was unpleasant. I don't think people like law school in general, but I really didn't like law school. Oof. It was really, um, you know, I met some great people, have some great friends, but it just wasn't a great fit for me. And so, you know, I don't know what happened, but once I started practicing law, I could barely get out of bed. It was such a drudgery. And, um, you know, here I am preparing about seven years to become a lawyer. I become one. And I realize I don't want to do this anymore. And what I can tell you is probably 50% of lawyers love what they do. The other 50%, they do it because they spent the seven years like I did preparing for it. And so I think the biggest decision I ever made in life was one of the biggest decisions, certainly the biggest career decision, was deciding that it was okay to try something new that would be that would really fit my skill set. Uh, because you work a long portion of your life. And to do something that you really don't love for a living, that was that was a big moment. And you know, I felt like I was letting a lot of people down, right? You know, um, my parents helped pay for my undergrad, so like I was pre-law, right? So <clears throat> I've been telling my father since I was five. After I, um, you know, well, probably a little later after I figured I wasn't going to win the Heisman Trophy, right? That I was going to come work with my dad, who was a you know country attorney. And uh, so that was really tough, Coates. Um, that was really tough, but that was a very important decision. And then I went into real estate and I had tremendous success in that because, again, it wasn't, failure wasn't an option. So I could be, you could be good at things if you're a competitor, but it doesn't mean it gives you energy. I, I found that being a lawyer drained me and then real estate really excited me actually, and I loved the I loved the business itself, the the day to day. But what I found out is, I wasn't going to be able to be the kind of father and husband I wanted to be in real estate because you're working when everybody isn't. And so, I would say it's pretty unique for someone making close to three hundred thousand dollars a year to to just cash in their chips and start brand new at 31, married with, uh, and my wife had decided to stay at home and we had already had a baby. And so that was, those were critical moments I would say in my life. And I think if, if there was anything that a listener might get out of this is, you know, is, is really encouraging, you know, individuals to do something that they're passionate about that energizes and gets them excited. Work doesn't have to be drudgery. It doesn't have to be a paycheck. It can be energizing and it can be fun. Um, you know. So, what was more stressful? I'd be curious to know. So, essentially, when you're with your law school, like becoming a lawyer, it sounds like became almost a part of your identity at that point. When you think about it for so long, you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. Yeah. You do it. Was there ever a point where you were thinking it was going to get better? Like, hey, I've got this false sense of hope that, like, it's got to get better because this is 100%. Yeah, I definitely thought it would get better. And it took a long time. You know, I just didn't want to be 
analyzing reading and writing and sitting at a desk. For someone who was outgoing, it was very stifling. And I think the one thing that I've really cognizant of as a parent, and not to oversteer my kids, but to understand their God-given gifts and then help them, encourage them to be exposed to things where they're going to have the wind at their back. You ever run into the wind if you're jogging? Yeah. And then you run with the wind at your back? Yep. It's a completely different feeling, right? And so life is hard and it doesn't mean the business I'm in is easy. It just means I'm having a lot more fun doing it. Um, and when you're, when you're naturally good at something, you're not, that doesn't mean you're going to be great at it. But if you start at something you're average, it's going to be really hard to be great. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a big thing for me. Do you find, you mentioned waking up every day just trudging through law school, which I'm actually fortunate. I've got quite a few friends that are attorneys and like, no one's ever told me like law school is easy. Even the smartest sure. I'm friends with will tell you, like, it sucked. Do you find that that helps position your gratitude now to loving what you do so much of going through that sure. and now not having to trudge getting up out of bed in the morning? 100%. I think there's a couple of things, you know, I have tremendous gratitude, I think for what I get to do. Um, first of all, I've tried other professions, right? I, I practice law. Um, I was in real estate, which I enjoyed the business, but it didn't really give me the life I wanted. It gave me professional uh, success, but it, it wasn't going to allow me to have the kind of personal success. But also the career we're in, we get to meet people on a daily basis and interview them and understand their goals and dreams and what they are looking to accomplish in their life and you get an interesting inside look at what people do for a living and how they feel about their career um, and that is that is really interesting and we there's just not many professions that ones like ours where you get insight to what other people are doing like our our business and that also gives me tr- tremendous gratitude. I feel like I'm so well positioned to help my kids figure out what they their gifts are and what careers might be appropriate for them where they can really have the wind at their back um, because of the day-to-day of our business. It's such an interesting thing that I, I'm so happy you brought that up. Like it's weird, right? What we think we're gonna do when we're younger, just like how we think when we're yes. younger versus how we think now. When I was a senior in high school or about a freshman in junior college, I thought I wanted to be a trader so bad. I mean, the reason being first one I saw Forbes magazine, I remember it was Carl Icahn made like 2.7 bill in a given year. And I was like, I didn't even know you could make that much money as a human yeah. being. I thought that was so cool. And you research and you see all the high flash, right? Like for me, watching the documentary Trader of Paul Tudor Jones was probably entertaining as much as like you watching Boston Legal, right? Yeah. With James Spader and William right. Shatner. Great show. Right. But I remember like you get this point where I, I have a couple of clients that are traders and after they told me what their day-to-day was like, there was a part of my brain that was telling me like, you're lying, there's no way yeah. it's that. And then as I get older and wiser and hearing the same story over and over and over again, the gratitude I have of like what you thought you once wanted versus what you have now, yeah, it's totally different. Well, now, yeah, can I, yeah. you mind if I jump in? So I think what happens is when you first get started in your career, it's all about survival, right? So you're just trying to survive. You're trying to make it, can I, can, I, can I make sure my boss doesn't fire me? 
right? And then you move to this significant, or excuse me, success. I just gave away the punchline. You, you move to success, and success is typically where you feel at work like you belong, you are succeeding at a certain level, um, and you're usually able to have the things in your life that um, you want to, you've always wanted to have. Maybe it's the, the car you wanted to drive, or the house, or the country club, or the vacation you want to go on. But you realize um, after you get to that point, you are um, disappointed unless you find significance in your work. And I think there are certain professions, ours, I believe, that it provides so much significance, which is why so many you know, advisors never retire or they do this for a long time because you get to be on family's journeys around watching them go maybe from a single person to a married, to having family, to watching their kids go to school, to helping them retire, to go on that family European vacation, right? And I think this career provides a lot of significance. Not all careers do that, but I think for those that um, maybe they're what they do on a day-to-day basis, they, you know, after they get to a certain level of success, they're sitting in front of me at 40, 45 years old and often saying, got to do this for another 20 years. And at that point, I think they have to either reinvent themselves or maybe find a way to use their financial resources to have um, significance outside of just supporting their family. Otherwise, it just becomes kind of how do I get to 60, 65 so I can accumulate enough wealth and check out. And, and that's a really, that's a really kind of, uh, you know, sad way to spend your last 20 years working. It's interesting that you brought this up. And I guess I want to talk about this really quickly before we j- jump into that. Actually, no, it's my own podcast. So I'll shed my prior question. So you talked about like how we first talked about when you're you know, 26 to uh, say 30, you got the opportunity to make a bunch of bad decisions, right? And then you start to gain some like consistency in your career and stuff like that. And then you talk about guys that are getting a 40, 45, right? Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you look around and go, whoa, I got to do this for another 20 years. It's the midlife crisis. That's where the midlife crisis comes in. Correct. Like how many bad decisions we see guys make yes. at that point, the magnitude now is exponentially bigger than when you're, you're 26, right? You might do something where you get, you know, arrested, you spend a night in jail. You can probably recover from that. That's fine, depending on the thing, right? You might get a DUI, which is really bad, right? But most people typically recover from that in some way, shape, or form, right? Yeah. Um, I still think it's the stupidest thing you can do is drive drunk. But so you get to 4045, right? And we typically see midlife crises. But now here's the problem. Remember how much you talked about when you said your dad affected you, like how you thought and like the competitive nature? Yeah. Well, now you screw up, but now your kids are watching. Oh yeah, it can have generational impact, right? Um, we help people build generational wealth, right? Not that you know, and that really might mean just passing on great um, habits and values and principles around money. But yeah, I mean, at forty-five, um, things go off the rails. It ha- it can be very painful for your children, um, your spouse. Um, you know, you can you could make bad decisions for your clients, um, and so I think what happens is at forty five that that's that what's next kind of thing, and if you don't figure out a way to 
reinvent yourself at that age, you can get bored. And when you get bored, I think you can, you're, you, you may put yourself in a position where you expose yourself for making some bad decisions that you might regret. It's wild. And then usually, hopefully at 45, you have more self-awareness, but sometimes in midlife crisis mode, it's so easy to <laughs> remove yourself from being a responsible adult. Just because you yeah. want to find something happy. You wake up every day, you don't want to do it anymore. But you have to, right? Exactly. So now you're trying to find this one outlet, this one little piece right here that can provide you an escape momentarily, Correct. right? Whether it's alcohol, yep. somebody else who's not your significant other. Unfortunately, a lot of times being in the world of finance, that's what usually the two often so much are. Um, now, when you think about this, though, Chad, so the, we move transition over to the growth stage of where you're at now, right? So you think about when you're uh, leaving real estate, right, so we shed law, right? We go into real estate. Mm -hmm. Then we drop real estate mm -hmm. and then jump into another line of career, which I'm assuming is super scary at that point of like making a lot of income and we're going to yank the lights off. Yeah. I mean, two cars, uh, nice, va you know, nice vacations, making donations. We were comfortable. I mean, you're pretty comfortable typically making, you know, 300 grand at 30, 31 years old. So yeah, it was, it was comfortable. That's like a thing I always love talking to people about too, of like the great, just to touch on that, like the great lie of what a hundred grand is. Like when you're going to school, like, and if you are really, really hard, you're going to make a yeah. hundred grand. Yeah. <laughs> as, as we just add another person to list that I'll tell you, like a hundred grand does not provide you with a Lamborghini and a 40,000 square foot mansion anywhere. Right? right. But we start to think about this now that do you find, so when you start the next career, you got all this pressure behind you, you'll figure it out. Right. Yeah, but now when you look at Chad's practice, because Chad won't talk about it, but his team's very large. Do you find that it's what do you think's harder? Having the pressure to know, like, hey, if I don't do anything, my bank account's going to go to zero, and I got my family counting on me, or is it harder now getting out of bed in the morning, knowing where it's like, hey, life's pretty good, and having the, like the biggest thing of having to force yourself to keep thinking bigger. Yeah. Like, which one do you think's harder to do? Uh, I think it's probably, it's probably harder now. Um, you know, at the beginning I was, it was, um, there was a lot of probably fear driving me, you know, 31, um, lots of bills to pay, um, needing to get to a certain level, um, you know, not wanting to have egg on my face that I made this decision to move my biz, uh, you know, transfer careers for the third time. Um, I felt like I had a lot to prove and I had to lot and I needed to accelerate fast. I also felt like I needed to accelerate fast because I just wanted my family not to feel like we were taking a step back because I was changing careers. Um, so that probably drove me at the beginning. And, you know, I won some different awards, like rookie-type awards. And, and But I didn't even feel like it was that a big deal. You know, I was like, because I didn't measure myself by those awards. I measured myself as like, I can do more. I, I, can, I can accomplish more. Do you think that's possible because, like, when you were a kid, your parents didn't care about the win. They cared about the effort? Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, you also got to be careful, too, right, when you have this kind of you know, driven mindset, right? You know, so I think now I'm 46 years old and, um, you know, I'm taking on a business partner. We 
created a boutique wealth management firm name, we're joining the private client group. I think those things are really healthy for me because it's allowing me to hit the reset button and it's kind of the next phase of my business. Like, what can I build from? And they started that process at 45. So, you know, now when I'm with my friends or clients or colleagues, you know, I feel pretty energized about the next 10 years of, of what we're building. Um, and it, it, it is tougher if you're not keep reinventing yourself. So I think that's, that's what I'm going through now. I think if I would just like, okay, I'm going to keep just building my practice the same way, it, it would, I probably would not be as excited and energized, but it's, it's tougher now because there's a lot on my plate. You know, you know, you have, um, you have so many, um, things that you want to, you know, you so much responsibility, right? Like, um, I have a friend that's dying of cancer. Like I, I've, I want to go visit him in Columbus whenever I can. Right. My parents are, aging and I want to support them as much as I can, but they live in Ohio and I live in Chicago. I have three children. My daughter's 16. You know, she'll be leaving the house soon. Um, you know, I have a 13 year old boy, you know, 13 year old boys being a teenage boy is, and especially in this environment and a 10 year old. So, and you know, most importantly, my marriage, that's, 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 you know, mission critical. Number one is to be growing in that area. So, I think a lot of times if you're in a business like ours, you feel like you can coast because all these other things are such, um, such priorities to you. But I've always just had this mentality like, why can't I be good at all? Why can't I be growing in all of those things and trying to advance in all of those things? That's so interesting too. Like, and it's, a lot of these questions are things I'll think of because it's like I'm going through it. So Chad's actually one of the few mentors that I actually have. So some of these questions, as much as this podcast is done to serve others, it also serves myself as well, which is a season two kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting because now I start to find about that too. Like the hardest part's thinking bigger. I miss waking up broke in a weird way. It sounds sadistic, but you kind of do because you have no other option. Correct. Versus you start to talk. Well, about the, the other option is to quit. But if the option isn't to quit, then after you're making, you're like, well, I'm not going to fail now. Right. So what is driving me now? And that's almost where I start to think like guys like yourself, like you can unintentionally find yourself in a midlife crisis if you don't reinvent yourself, right? Because it's like, hey, this thing keeps going good, keeps going good. It's kind of on autopilot in a good way, right? You're like, why would you keep driving? Because if you don't, with the other side of that's typically not going to produce a fruitful result. When you... Start to think about it right now. So like just with your competitive nature, I find that like you and I are both climbing Everest. You're just steps ahead of me. So I get the luxury advantage to be like, hey man, what's it like up there? Because I'm going to get there. It's just, just due to time and like effort over time, like just you're ahead of getting towards the top. But when you think about the next like <coughs> segment of your life, right? And starting to like, obviously we can do this for a long time, but what do you look back on in think about is your favorite thing that you find yourself reflecting back upon? Um, <clears throat> I think the journey, right? Uh, um, I think that, you know, if you're building a business, 
Um, I think the thing I'm probably reflect on the most is um, I don't even know how I got to where I'm at, right? Uh, I've got a long way to go, and I'm, there are a lot of people that are more successful than me, but, you know, for by my standards of what I thought was possible 15 years ago versus where I was at now, I would have never thought this was possible. But the reason it was possible is who I surrounded myself with and the, the journey along the way. Um, I also have a thankful for all the people that played a role in helping me build my business, you know, whether that's, you know, staff um, <clears throat> that believed in me and wanted to work here or, you know, other advisors or, you know, friends that spent time with me, mentors, coaches. Um, so I reflect on those things. Um, and I always tried to have, you know, codes, uh, we haven't talked about this, but I've always had, in addition to surrounding myself with peers, I've always really had a business coach. So for the last 10 years, I think that is critical too, because you can get on the treadmill and just kind of go day by day. But if no one is helping you take a step back to reflect on what's really going to help you grow and, and keep you excited and hold you accountable, um, I think it's really tough to get there. You know, so uh, you know, my business coach is more like my personal psychologist. Honestly, they they know a lot about the business, but half the things we talk about, at least half the things, have to do with my personal life. Because, you know, first of all, he has, you know, he, he believes that you can't, what is it really worth to be good in your profession if you're not, you know, growing in your personal life? Mm. Um, so he helps me balance that because that can get out of balance really quickly when you're driven towards, you know, building a business. Yeah. Um, or vice versa. Sometimes I'll go through a funk and be like, well, you know, I... I really don't, uh, you know, I have what I need for my family, so, you know, why don't, why don't I coast a little bit? Yeah. Um, and he's always getting me refocused that if, if I'm more successful in my business, doesn't mean that my family needs nicer things. It's like, what can I do with, uh, how can I use my influence to help others build their careers if I'm more successful? Or um, what can I do with, um, you know, my money uh, for causes that are important to me if I'm more successful. So if I'm going to be working, I might as well do the best I can and try to grow as much as I can so I can, ha I can have the most impact. When you... I feel like we could do like maybe a part two or part three in this, but just due to time constraints. Um, That's really reflective. I guess, Chad, the closing question we always like to ask is... What is the worst piece of business advice you've ever gotten here? Because you know most folks say, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever gotten? And that's so subjective. But what would you say is the worst piece of business advice? Because usually that's a pretty easy one to find where it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> I would tell people don't listen to that part. Oh, I don't know. Um, I think it's, I think it's, you know, don't chase, don't chase the money. You know, I think do just do right by people and um, you know things good things will happen you'll you'll be blessed beyond all measures 
Um, so, you know, do something, you know, don't, I think, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, you should be a corporate attorney. And uh, maybe that kept me being a lawyer, just the, the image and the prestige that comes along with that. Um, so I would just say, don't chase the money, don't chase the title. Um, do something you're, you know, that you're excited about that maybe God gave you the talents for and then be really great at it. Got it. Right on, brother. Well, appreciate you. Love you so much, dude. Thank you so much for coming on this one. Um, it's been fun for all the listeners that continue through season two. Hope this is enjoyable. And like we always say, to the next us being the next us. Later.